Let's turn to God's Word now. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. That's page 654, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. This is the very Word of God. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations." The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. The Lord speaking there prophetically through the servant, through his servant Isaiah of bringing in the nations to come and uh, become part of his church through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see happening a little bit here in our New Testament reading Acts 17, 1 through 15. Acts chapter 17, 1 through 15. Now when they'd passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the whole world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they'd taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. 
Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And one more text, 1 Thessalonians 1, one our primary sermon text this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our prayer, O God, is that you would indeed speak Till your church is built and your name is glorified. Speak now, for your servants are listening. Amen. I've given uh, much thought and much prayer to how we should begin our time together. Right? We're, we're starting a, a new chapter in the ministry of the church. This is my first sermon as your pastor. And the first sermon series that we're taking on together. And so how, I was thinking, you know, how should we start? Uh, what, what do I say first? What makes the right foundation for how, uh, how I minister among you and how you receive that ministry and, and pray for that ministry and respond to it? What, what should characterize the relationship between a pastor and a church? How should, how should that relationship work? What rules should it operate by? What should, what should the flavor of that relationship be? Of course, we might have our own thoughts and opinions about what a pastor should be and how a congregation should be and how they should relate to each other. Uh, but what we need, right, is to go hear what God has to say about that. Uh, and, and, and that's why we're going to 1 Thessalonians. Because 1 Thessalonians speaks with wonderful relevance to this very issue. Uh, to, it, it speaks of Paul's ministry among the Thessalonians. It gives a wonderful picture of his pastoral care for them and their, their wonderful response and their faith in Christ that they demonstrate. And, and it gives us this picture in the midst of opposition and difficulty. So it's not like it's a, you know, a glossy, Instagram-ready picture of you know, pastoral ministry. And, and how a church responds. No, it's, it's here in the furnace of hot opposition that we get this wonderful, gospel-rich picture. And that's the foundation we need, brothers and sisters. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the foundation of, of our life and ministry together. And that's going to be our focus as we look together uh, at First Thessalonians. We want to lay a gospel foundation for what kind of pastor I should be, what kind of pastor you should pray that I would be, and what kind of a church we should be together and how we together should respond to God's Word, even in the face of whatever difficulty and opposition might come. So that's, that's our goal as we start. That's, that's kind of the why to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so with that in mind, let's, let's dive in now to 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1, uh, and, and the situation there as Paul's writing. But to, 
Before we, before we get there, let's actually um, dive into the, the backstory in Acts, which we read, right? The origin story of the church in Thessalonica. What's, what's the backstory here, right? Because Paul's not writing the letter to the Thessalonians in a vacuum. It's not a theological treatise. It's a personal, real, warm letter that's happening in a real situation. What's the situation? We read about it in Acts 17, right? The gospel comes to Thessalonica, it seems to turn everything upside down. The whole city turns, uh, you know, breaks into an uproar. Acts tells us that uh, it was on Paul's second missionary journey uh, that he comes to the th- city of Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is a really important city. It's a it's a large city. Uh, it was the capital of the province Macedonia that that it was in, and so Paul comes there and and he does what he always does. When he comes to a new city, he finds the synagogue, the place where the Jews were in that city gathered to worship Yahweh, the Lord. He finds the synagogue. He comes and he asks if he can preach. He unrolls the scroll, the Old Testament scroll, and he starts to preach. And he does this in Thessalonica for for three Sabbaths and, and probably in between those days too. He comes, he unrolls the scroll, and he starts reading the Old Testament and he's saying, Look, the, the, the Christ you're longing for from the Old Testament, the Messiah, look, he had to suffer and die. And he's going through these texts in the Old Testament, and then he's saying, and, and it's Jesus, he's the Christ. It goes so well at first. Um, some of the Jews believe, we're told. Uh, and then verse 4 in Acts 17 tells us, many devout Greeks believe. These are some Greeks who had been part of this church, uh, excuse me, part of this synagogue, they hadn't become full-fledged Jews with a sign of circumcision, but they were Greeks who believed in the Lord of the Old Testament. But, but they, they eat this up. They love what Paul's saying about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. They believe, and, and many women there believe. Uh, many, many unbelievers around them in the city of Thessalonica seem to be believing as well. People are getting saved and baptized. Everything's going really well. In just three weeks, a church is planted there. But then opposition comes, right? And that's always what happens when the Lord is at work. Opposition does come. Acts 17.5 tells us that the Jewish leaders, seeing all this wonderful spirit-wrought success, get jealous. And uh, it's interesting here. It doesn't say they deny what Paul's preaching. Right? They're, not, they're not upset about his arguments. They can't contradict him. His exegesis is watertight. But they get jealous. They, they don't care about the truth. They just care about their pride and their place and position. So they get jealous. People don't want to hear them preach on the the law anymore. People want to hear Paul preach about how Christ fulfills the law. So they're jealous. They go, they they, they get a uh, a bunch of rabble-rousers together. They they get a mob together. um, And they go looking for Paul and Silas and Timothy to drag them away. Um, They can't find them. They, They come to this house of someone named Jason. They don't find Paul and Silas there, so they drag Jason and some others away. And then they they accuse them like this in verse 7. These who have turned the whole world upside down have come here too. Isn't that an interesting charge that they make? This is their perception of the apostles, of Paul and and, and his work. They, They see it and they say, he's turning the whole world upside down. They, 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 they say that um, Paul is calling us to follow a different king than Caesar. It's a dangerous message in a city like Macedonia, uh, in Thessalonica, in this region of Macedonia. They have a history, right? They have 
You know, Alexander the Great is from this place, right? So they have this deep longing in Macedonia for their own king again. And, and so, you know, the Jews latch on to this. This is a dangerous message to be preaching another king, Jesus, instead of Caesar. So the city officials hear this charge and they, they, they don't want trouble. They're, they're going to take this seriously. So the Christians are charged with causing trouble. Of course, it's ironic because it's actually the, you know, the, the unbelieving who have pulled this mob together and turned the city upside down, really. But the Christians are charged with it. But there's truth in their words, isn't there, that they've turned the world upside down? Because that's what the message of Christ does. Right, that's, that is what's happening. Right, Christ is the hinge of history. He is flipping everything on its head. He is really turning everything right side up. Brothers and sisters, this message of the Gospel is disruptive. Um, it must disrupt us, right? It must disrupt our, uh, our lives. It must uh, change things for us. We don't live the way the world lives. We don't follow the king the world follows. We serve King Jesus. So that's, that's, that's the accusation. They're turning the world upside down. So that's, that's how the church in Thessalonica gets started. That's, that's a bit of the backstory, right? The origin story. They start out well, hungry for God's word, but then they oppose it. Can you imagine um, being one of those early believers in Thessalonica? Right, you've only come to this faith. You're just, you're, it's just a few weeks old. And suddenly you're being dragged before the authorities for what you've believed. Does it cause you to doubt? Does it cause you to, to wonder if you'd be better off? the way you were before. So you can imagine Paul's concern. You can see why after he's, he's, he's had to leave this church so early that he would want to write a letter to see how they're doing. That's the context here. Paul, uh, Paul actually sends Timothy to visit them. Timothy goes, he sees them, he comes back to Paul with the news that they're doing, they're doing pretty well. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to rejoice in that and encourage them in that and give them some more. Instruction. So let's turn now to 1 Thessalonians 1 1, and our, our particular text, our focus this morning. Let me read it again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in the opening verse of 1 Thessalonians, uh, we get gospel concentrate. We get, we get like a thick syrup, right? The gospel boiled down to its densest, most compressed form. As Paul does two things. He does two things here. He reminds the church here of its new identity and their new reality. Their new identity and their new reality. First, he, he talks to them about their new identity. He says, he, ca- he calls them a church. The Greek word there is ekklesia. It's a, it's a loaded word. It would have triggered a couple of associations for them. On the one hand, uh, uh, an ekklesia, a church in their Greek-Roman culture, referred to the governing assembly of the, of the city, the, 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 the uh, upper-class uh, men who kind of ruled the affairs of the city. That was the ekklesia. And, and, and these, these men would conduct the affairs of the city in the name of a, of a deity, a patron deity, and they'd offer sacrifices and prayers to that deity as they're conducting their affairs and, and ruling 
the city. And maybe some people in this church in Thessalonica were part of that ecclesia, that assembly, right, that ruled the city. And and so Paul is saying to them, by calling them a church here, he's saying, you Thessalonians are a new ecclesia, a new church. You're You're a new congregation. You've been called out of that one to this one. Right, you're not you're not offering prayers and sacrifices to that false patron deity anymore. No, you're serving you're serving the Lord. And this isn't just for the, the upper class and, and the men who are citizens. No, this is for all rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old. It's only the only requirement is that you trust in Christ. That's that's one association they would have had as they heard that word church. The other is this though, and, and this is probably even more important. If you were to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, this is the version that the, the people there in that day would have been reading. It refers to the congregation of Israel in the Old Testament as ecclesia, as the church in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 9.10, for example, says this, Then the Lord delivered to me, it's Moses speaking, The Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly or church. Ecclesia, that's that's the word. Paul is saying, you Thessalonians are are, are part of Israel. Yes, many of you are Gentiles, you're Greeks, but you are part of Israel. Your, Your spiritual heritage goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not defined by anything else now but by this. Brothers and sisters, dear saints, this isn't just true of Thessalonica. This is true of us, right? You and I. This is our identity now. Limington OPC is a church. We are part of the church of God, going all the way back to God's promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. This is our identity now. There's, There's no break between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. There's just one people of God, the church, and and we're part of that. that, What does that mean for us? It means that we are the delight of the Lord, His prized possession, that that we are the ones who've been called out of sin and slavery and death, and we've been brought into communion with the living God. Paul goes on here to describe this with yet more clarity. He says, this church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so all our identity is wrapped up in belonging to God and Jesus Christ. The great 4th century preacher John Chrysostom comments on this text. He says, This is a great dignity and to which there is nothing equal. That, that we belong to God, that we are a church that is, belongs to God. He says there's nothing equal with that honor. Our culture says great dignity is found in membership in other organizations or, or being a part of other things, being, being wealthy or, or influential or, 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 or having many possessions. Dignity is found in belonging to, to some kind of elite society. Or maybe we're tempted to find our honor, our dignity, and you know, in belonging to a particular family, or belonging to a particular social class, or being from a particular place, even being from Maine, right? But but this is where our honor and dignity are to be found in God Himself, in belonging to Him. 
And think about that. That message, right? Think of that for the Thessalonians. What's their situation? Well, they're being shamed, slandered, and ridiculed because they've come to faith in Christ. Right? They no longer belong in Thessalonica. They don't fit in anymore there. Paul is saying, don't you worry about belonging in Thessalonica. You belong to God. What higher dignity, what higher honor could you ask for? And we could say that to ourselves, right? What sweeter place is there to belong? What, what higher dignity is there for us? No matter how we might be despised, overlooked, opposed, right? We are a church in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We wouldn't trade that for anything. That's our new identity, brothers and sisters. We belong as a church to God, to Christ. Then Paul turns his attention to our new reality. So we've seen our new identity, now our new reality. Listen to Paul's words next. He says, grace to you and peace. Some people say, well, that's just Paul's way of saying hi. Uh, you know, it's just, these are throwaway words. It's just his greeting. But there was a way to say that in the ancient world. You could just write greetings. That's the way a typical Greek letter would have started. You know, Paul's not just saying, hi, I hope you're doing well. These are, these are, these are rich words. These are loaded words, right? As I said earlier, this is gospel concentrate here. He, he really sums up the whole of our salvation in Christ, doesn't he? Grace, the means, peace the end, the goal of everything that God has done. Grace and peace. And he, he begins this way, brothers and sisters, and, and, and I think all his letters, and he ends this way in most of his letters, right, with a word of grace and peace and a concluding word of grace and peace. Because this is, this is the reality that Christians live in. This is the world that we live in. The air we breathe is God's grace and peace to us. So first, let's look at this word. He, get, he says grace. The Thessalonians live under grace. What is God's grace? We talk about grace a lot. We sing about it a lot. Um, what is grace? Maybe you know the answer. It's unmerited favor. Yes, it is. Absolutely. It's more than that, though, isn't it? It's actually demerited favor, right? It's, it's not just not getting what we deserve, but getting the opposite of what we deserve, right? Deserving to be treated poorly and, and actually being treated well. There's a wonderful picture of this in, uh, in the story Les Miserables. Maybe you've read it or seen it. Um, in the story, there's this convict, Jean Valjean, who uh, commits theft. He's taken to prison for it. He spends a long, long time in prison, right? Then he gets out on parole. He's looking for a place to spend the night after he's out on parole. And no one will take him in, of course, because he's, he's been in prison for so long, and, and he bears the marks of that. And, and finally, a, a bishop brings him in, keeps him in his house, gives him a bed, gives him a meal, place to stay. And the bishop actually kind of hints to this ex-convict, you know, this is where the silverware is kept, the valuable silverware is kept here. And, uh, of course, in the night, Jean Valjean gets up, steals the silver, and runs away. And in, in the morning, the authorities catch him. They bring him back, and they're expecting the bishop to say, yes, that's my silver, he stole it, take him back and lock him up. But the bishop says something really shocking. 
right? Jean Valjean is there. The stolen silver is there. Everybody knows what, what really happened. But, but the bishop says, no, no, no. I, I gave it to him. And, but, but, and then he says to Jean Valjean, you forgot to take these as well. And he gives him a pair of valuable silver candlesticks. He says, you forgot to take these. I gave you these too. Right? That's, that's what, what a wonderful picture of grace. What did Jean Valjean deserve? He deserved to go back to prison. Right? The bishop doesn't just say, no, no, I gave him those. Let him go. He says, here's more. That's, that's what grace is. And brothers and sisters, we've done far worse than theft. We have, we have broken, you and I have broken every one of God's commandments. There's not a single aspect of God's holy law we haven't broken or a single aspect of His holy character that we have not offended. Our spiritual hearts pump out sin the way our physical hearts pump out blood. And, and so we deserve the wrath of God. What does He give us, though? Right, right. We deserve wrath. What does He give us? He gives us grace. We, we were like, um, to be under God's wrath. What's, what's that mean? What's that like? I think it's like being convicted and sitting in the electric chair. You're under wrath. It hasn't come yet, but it's coming. That's what it is to be under wrath. And that's the world the Thessalonians used to live in. Right? Sitting in the electric chair, whether they knew it or not. That's the reality you and I lived in. That's where we were sitting before we came to know this gospel. And then into that reality comes this one. Grace to you. You are no longer under wrath. Get out of the chair. Right? We're not on the cross now. Christ is on the cross in our place. God's wrath falls on the Lord Jesus and we're completely forgiven. And then not just, you know, our our record hasn't just been wiped clean. No, now we have Christ's record to us as well. Imagine if you had a convicted murderer and you clear his record and then you say, now take the the Pope's record, right? This, this, This swap, this exchange. This is what's happened to us. We've exchange. We've traded our record for Christ. Grace to you. Not under wrath anymore. Under grace. Loved ones, this is the world we live in. This is, the, this is what we should wake up every morning of, with fresh in our minds. That God is gracious to me. You know, Paul is not really the one writing these words here. Um, these aren't Paul's words so much to the Thessalonians. These are God's words to the Thessalonians and God's Word to us. Loved ones, let us live in the grace of God. Uh, Let us us live in that reality. Let us, as a church, breathe that air together and and walk by that rule together, the rule of God's grace. Let's have that shape my ministry among you and and our ministry together. Let's have it shape uh, everything in our, in, our, in our lives together, our marriages and how we parent and, and, and our work and our service and our friendship. Let's, let's have it be under the gospel of God's grace. So that's, that's grace. And then Paul goes on, he says, and peace to you. Again, what a message the Thessalonians needed to hear, right? <clears throat> Here they are in this situation of hostility, opposition, and hatred. They're not living in peace. 
Paul writes, peace to you. He's saying, don't, don't worry about the opposition coming from uh, the culture around you. Don't pay attention and worry about that. Worry about this. God gives you peace. But pay attention to this. God says to you, peace. What is this? What is this peace? Well, uh, it's, it's not, uh, it can be an, an inner sense of calm and tranquility. That's a wonderful blessing God can give. But, but the peace Paul is speaking here is, is something that's much more um, stable and deep and, and, and immovable. This is something objective. This is like bedrock that he's giving to them. He's saying, he's saying God is now at peace with you. Right, this overlaps with what we said earlier about God's grace to us. We're not under His wrath. We're under His grace. Well, We're not in conflict with the living God. The holy God is no longer at war with us for our sin. No, we're at peace with Him. Romans 5.1 We've been justified with, by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, Dear Thessalonians, here is the bedrock of your peace. It's this. You have peace with God. If, if I have peace with God, what does it matter if anyone else is opposed to me in the end? And this peace with God, it's more than just a ceasefire, isn't it? Uh, often we use peace in that way in our, in our context, right? Peace is just, it just means the war is over, the conflict's over. But peace in the Bible is, is a richer picture than that. It's fuller. Um, it, it's the picture of complete harmony. So not just the, the end of the war, but, but the fullest possible abundance and blessing. It's when everything is as it should be. Think of the high priest's blessing in Numbers 6, where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you and give you His peace. That's, that's the goal. That God would give us peace. The fullness of blessing with Himself. So I was trying to think how to illustrate what this peace, what that positive, full sense of peace looked like. I, I thought of the parable of the prodigal son. Right? Now, you know the story. The son hates his father. Um, sees his father as just a means to an end. He just wants the money. He asks for it early. He takes it and he runs. And he goes, he squanders the money, living in sin, living recklessly. And he's reduced to rags. He's made a beggar. Um, finally, the Lord brings him to his senses. He says, I'm going to go to my father and ask him to make me a servant. But he comes and he finds his father has been waiting for him, watching for him. His father runs to him and welcomes him. And, 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 and the father doesn't just forgive him and make him a servant. The father lavishes blessing on him. And, and the thing to see is that the father doesn't just end the conflict that was between him and his son. He restores him to the right relationship again. He throws a celebration. He clothes him with, with robes. And, and he says, you are my son again. He says, this my son, right, who was lost, who was dead to me, has, is back. He's, he's back now. He's my son. That's what peace is. It's having the fullness of our relationship with God restored and all its blessing. Brothers and sisters, uh, this is what God has done for you and for me. This is the goal of His grace, right? That He can give Himself to us and restore that relationship perfectly. So, loved ones, uh, as we come to a close, are you living under the grace and peace of God? Has God made peace with you through the blood of His Son? Have you come to trust in that and accept that? Um, 
Do you, do you walk under this? Are, are you breathing this air? Are you, are you walking by this gospel? Right? Are you, are you uh, uh, living out your life in the light of this wonderful truth of God's grace to you and His peace to you in Christ? I don't just, we, we don't just want this for us individually, though, do we? We want it for us as a church. Uh, we want this for, for my ministry among you and yours to me. That, that, that all together, that as a church, uh, we would walk together, live together under the gospel of Christ. This is why Paul starts and ends his letters this way, right? Grace and peace. These are the bookends. Everything happens between grace and peace, brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, you know, this is, uh, this is the message, right? We read earlier in Acts 17. This is the message that turned that world upside down there in Thessalonica, or as we've been saying, it turned the world right side up. And, and this message of God's grace and peace has gone on doing exactly that. And it's, it's this very message uh, that can turn our church the right way up and our lives the right way up and, and, and the message that can go out to our community and bless them and call them into Christ, this message of grace and peace. So let's, let's seek to live under it and let us pray that this will be the foundation of all that we strive to do by God's grace together. Let's pray.